0: Friday, May the 19th, and this is the Inside Politics podcast wrap of the week from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me today in studio are Pat Leahy and Jack Horgan-Jones from our political staff. Hello to you both. Hello in person, Hugh. Hello, Hugh. How are you? I'm very good. It's great to see you in person. It's very rare that we get to get to do these Friday ones entirely in person. We should we should do it more often. Um, it's been a busy week, but it's been busy mostly on a single subject, Jack, and you've been covering quite a lot of it, which is these ongoing uh, ructions over accommodation for asylum seekers.
1: Yes, I think we've all had a go writing the, the front page lead this week on, on the asylum seeker controversy. Um, and as a correspondent, an eager correspondent in government pointed out to me today I can't remember the last time that the Irish Times led on the same story for five days in a row. And they also had plenty of uh, words of invective for RTE who have relentlessly led uh, Bolton's all week with the controversy over the uh, location of um, asylum seekers. Do they think the we're blowing it out of proportion? It's, crowded, I, I, it's crowding. I think crowding reading, out reading the between news the lines—the amazing
2: things the government <laughs> is doing—I think might have been the point. Was
1: it? Yeah, reading between the lines and the swear words. Yes, I think that might be the uh, that might be the suggestion. And look, they they, they may have have something of a point, um, but I think that it also betrays probably uh, 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 the the lack of comfort or. Um, The concern, I think, within government over the fact that this is a is a crisis that probably ebbs and flows in terms of its topicality and importance. Once every kind of four to six weeks, I find that we are writing about it more than we have done for the last four to six weeks. But it doesn't seem to be something that the government is kind of getting its wrapping its uh its arms around, and that's something that we're going to be looking at in tomorrow's paper and Saturday's paper. We've a long read in on the kind of the politics of of migration and how it kind of seems to exercise pressure at all different levels of politics, whether that's, you know, at a local level, as we've seen in Inch and Clare all week long, or at a national level. We saw it spill over into into some fairly tense exchanges, uh, a cabinet this week, which ourselves and others reported on in uh, Tuesday or Wednesday's paper. And we're also having a look at, you know, the, the finances of, of providing refugee accommodation, something that the Irish Times has been looking at. For the last little while, we have the the, the details of a a new uh, refugee accommodation centre in a part of the country that some people have argued is a little bit underserved by facilities of this nature. Where would uh, that be? It's in South Dublin. One of the nicer parts of South Dublin, but details in, in tomorrow's Irish Times. Um Ooh. And looking at, I suppose, the question of, you know, how do how do the politics of this all work out? You know, should we expect to see this being an item that kind of galvanises the debate at election time? Or, you know, is it going to be visible uh, within the national polling or is it kind of, you know, forming voter intent or uh, shaping local politics at a more kind of you know granular level or a harder to detect level. And is this migration politics something that we need to to get used to in Ireland? Is it something that you know we've avoided for quite some time and a topic that has overtaken uh, taken over politics in other European jurisdictions? And we've had uh, something of a charmed existence hitherto. On
0: so we we went into quite a lot of this in some detail on Wednesday's podcast, Pat. But uh, listening to Jack there, one of the things that strikes me is he says it comes in waves. And we can certainly see that in terms of the news cycle. But underneath those waves, it seems to me there is an incremental problem that just appears to be getting worse rather than better with no sign of that changing.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, the reason that this was such a story all week, um, I think, was that, you know, some very newsworthy things happened last weekend. You know, there was a major protest in uh, Dublin city centre. There was um, a bunch of tents were burned out of it by um, by far-right protesters. And, uh, um, you know, the, I think we mentioned this on the Midweek podcast uh, uh, as well, that, you know, the guards briefed government that there have been 125 uh, anti-immigration protests uh, in Dublin so far this year, you know. So this is the reason that we're writing about it on the front page every day this week um, is because it's a really important issue and has transfixed the political system this week Is uh, as Jack mentioned earlier and as you reported during the week it was the subject of um, uh, of a row as at, uh, at cabinet and there's the ongoing situation uh, down in uh, down in Clare and um, can I ask you on the politics of it we reported the row in cabinet how
0: serious is the row in cabinet so it's not a I, I coalition don't think, it's not, I not a don't coalition it's a, partner.
2: No, okay, no, no it's not it's it's not a split between the parties or between different elements uh, in in cabinet there was um insofar as we can piece together uh, the fairly feisty exchanges where Roderick O'Gorman was looking for more help from some of his cabinet colleagues, some of which particularly Darrell O'Brien, was mentioned in dispatches, came back and said, Look, we've we've done uh, we've done everything that you asked us for and it's time for you to do some things as well. What Roderick, sort of things Roderick O'Gorman went out um very deliberately, I think, on the Wednesday to calm the troubled waters. He did uh, a doorstep down in his department on Bagot Street, which I noticed was attended by uh, the Assistant Government Press Secretary from the Green Party and by one of Eamon Ryan's uh, chief advisors. Um, And the purpose of all that, I think, was to mend some fences. Leo Varadkar had earlier that day said uh, anything that he's asked for, he has been uh, he, he has been given. And the line coming out of, of Roderick O'Gorman at that stage was very much, um, yes, everything uh, that I've been, that I've asked for I've been given but we all need to do more as a government and he was presenting it very much as a whole of government challenge whereas the view of some of his colleagues would be yes that is true but only in the sense that governments act, ah, government acts as a collective authority there is delegated authority for dealing with individual issues in your own department so now kindly get on with it This particular subject of where responsibility
0: lies and it lying solely with Roderick Gorman and his department has been a subject of conversation for some time hasn't it? I seem to remember five or six months ago this came up that, you know, this was, you know, an unanticipated crisis, certainly at the scale of, you know, with the Ukrainian arrivals and and, and the other stuff. And that you know, Rodica Gorman, first time TD, first time minister, relatively small department, which in its shape is not necessarily built to deal with this as its as its uh, as its primary subject. You know that it needed some kind of a rethink and and some other people to pile in. You no,
1: know? yeah, that was a big thing around the time of the T changeover. It was uh, fairly well flagged that we weren't going to get much of a cabinet uh, shake up, but there was a suggestion that there might be a kind of formal reorganization of the integration function. Um, and then, even though certainly the mood music from the Greens and from Roderick Gorman's camp has been, you know, I need I need more help here. When push came to shove around last December, my memory is that he actually kind of said, you know, more or less I'm fine. We don't need to certainly create a dedicated senior cabinet ministry for integration. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not drowning here. And he ended up getting an extra minister of state in the form of Joe O'Brien, who who is responsible for integration functions. So it wasn't quite a seismic or fundamental reorganization. And and I suppose you could argue that, you know, if he wanted to hit the eject button on it then, that was his opportunity and, and he kind of dug in. And that that digging in followed on, and this is a point that, that the Taoiseach made in an interview with Claire Byrne on Thursday, that followed on from a request from the Green Party during the uh, government, the the government formation negotiations, to extract the integration functions from the Department of Justice, from in the words of, of one source, uh, the cold hearted Department of Justice, it um, spoke to me for the piece this weekend, and put it into 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 a, a department that the the Greens would hold the portfolio because they wanted to do things like solve direct provision and so on, and they wanted to kind of have that political feather in their cap come come next election because it's very important to them, very important to their base, and. Um, that agenda has obviously been blown out of the water uh, by the by the Ukraine crisis and by the massive upsurge in, in, in more traditional uh, asylum seekers coming to these shores um, to the point where, you know, I think that the direct provision uh, reorganisation agenda is, 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 is gone effectively. I think people have admitted that.
2: Well, when you've got 500 people living on the streets who've been told that the state has no capacity to provide them with accommodation as the courts have... Told the state that legally it must do. At that point, the uh, the urgency of reforms to the direct provision yeah, system. Yeah, the, the idea that we're going to bring in a new direct important. provision yeah.
1: system, which has an own door accommodation for everyone, which is one of the kind of signifier things that we'd move away from congregated kind of direct, you know, the big Mosny style stuff, and towards something more approaching apartments that just seems like a fanciful pipe dream. Um, and, I mean, to come, back, to come back to the main point, though, I think that the, the the tensions within Cabinet stem from the fact that this is, you know, becoming intractable. Um, the question I have is the degree to which people are actually going to vote on it next time. I don't know whether either of you it's a, it's, have a view it's on that.
2: It's hard to see the political division on it. I mean, to the extent that there is political division... I suppose what the opposition are saying is that you should be doing what you're doing just more efficiently and mm. more quickly. Whereas there isn't a political constituency, at least within the Dole, to say, for example, as there is in many other European countries, stop letting so many foreigners into yeah. our country. That's the, just not there isn't in, there point, the point?
0: One point which you made in, in Wednesday's podcast is that it could serve to establish a narrative about the government being incompetent or not not carrying out its basic functions. And the other point, the bigger point, which other people have pointed out too, is that this could be the moment in advance of that European trend, which you talked about, starting to become evident at an electoral level, for example, at the next local elections.
2: True, of course, just because I mentioned it on Wednesday doesn't mean that I necessarily hold the same view today. But in this instance... Our listeners um, will be familiar uh, with that uh, phenomenon. uh, I'm sure. (laughs) Uh, In this uh, this instance, uh, I do. The only thing about that sort of slight realignment bit that you've been that you that you mentioned is there is that people have been kind of talking about that for a long time and it hasn't happened and while there is clearly a bunch of uh people who are very agitated by immigration there isn't, I think, any signs, and I suppose the real test of this would maybe come in the local and European elections of next year, but so far there isn't really a sign, and we've just discussed this aspect of Irish politics here before, there isn't really a sign that it is gaining an electoral foothold and that people will vote on this above the other things that they believe to be uh, important. And I think that's, uh, like, it, it may well be, you know, that there is a, a large number of people who are a bit uneasy about levels of immigration. I don't know, we haven't uh, polled on it. But whether they vote for candidates that stand particularly on that platform is is altogether a much bigger question. If you take the example, say, of abortion... A third uh, of of uh, a third of the electorate voted against the legal uh, the liberalization of abortion, but the number of people who think it 's the most important issue when selecting a candidate
1: is and has always been tiny and that 's what history tells us. Do you agree with that, jack? I, I do in the round. I think that um first of all, from a kind of party political point of view i don 't think that there's a future in which the doll has a large party for which migration is a main issue or uh, a large party for which migration is even a large issue. But I do think that it can form part of a kind of political mood music whereby someone who has as part of their platform a kind of classic populist stance that, you know, Dublin or policymaking elites are disinterested in you. They think that you're incidental to their wider plan. Uh, They... They are indifferent to your interests, your outlook, and really, you know, where you live is by and large just a parking place for their policy problems. Um, and you know, people who perceive that may also perceive that they are being talked down to, uh, and by by liberal media elites like us, and you know, described lazily as racists. Um, and you know, they would feel. I think that that would that could build a bit of a head of steam. I think that where that goes likely is, is to independence, though rather than to any any political party as such and that I think that this is something that we've said in this studio many times before that, you know, an independent who can effectively kind of pull those threads together and make the feeling of being marginalized by migration politics as opposed to necessarily being anti-migrant or anti-immigration to the forefront of what they're talking about i think they they might well encounter a good degree of success yeah
2: but it's i wonder though if you know that that kind of weaponization if you like of the political weaponization of the immigration thing doesn't take place in and of itself it's not there isn't an immigration uh, silo that is likely to, I think, politically radicalise very many people. No doubt it may happen for some people. But there is a receptor for that same sort of being ignored by the elites Mm. feeling and a section of the electorate which is anti-establishment and whose sense of being ignored is catered for by a political party. And a lot of those voters go to Sinn Féin. It's just that Sinn Féin has stood against the... uh, uh, anti-immigration, indeed, and this
0: and this is why some people think that where you might see a political manifestation of this is after Sinn Féin enters government and perhaps its current yeah. coalition starts yeah, right, starts to fall apart to some extent. We're, we're going to leave that subject there for the moment. It's a very serious subject. We're going to be talking about a slightly more absurd and, to my mind, entertaining subject after the break. Before we do that, just to remind you that you can subscribe to The Irish Times at the unsurprising URL of irishtimes.com slash subscribe. If you haven't already done so, I urge you to do it right now. We'll be back after this. And Pat and Jack are still here. What are we going to do about Matt Barrett?
2: <laughs> uh, no, nothing, I think. <laughs> um... Yes, uh, Matt, Matt Barrett uh, was um, in the news this week. Miriam Lord wrote about this in her Saturday column last week. She he broke the big story. Broke the big story. Uh, he had uh, sent uh, various uh, Instagram posts to his followers. Have we explained something. that Matt Barrett is the Taoiseach's partner? Sorry, the Taoiseach's partner. Um, for seven years, as the Taoiseach told us uh, during the week. Maybe this is some class of seven-year itch. I don't know. Um and uh, anyway, so he sent various kind of snarky posts, poking fun. I they suppose were a little bit funny. Come on, they were a little bit funny. I, not terribly funny. Uh, I thought, um, but anyway, yeah. Uh, I'm perhaps not the best uh, best judge of that. But anyway, so he was in a little bit of trouble. First, he apologised, um, and I think everybody agreed to
0: to move on. Is that it? Right. Well, I think sort of the English press had a minor tizzy over it when they picked, picked up our story a on, on, tizzy, on, on, on Monday morning. Um, I may be over, over reading too much into this, Jack, but it seems to me the, the the Leo Varadkar brand, let me put it that way, which was very much what Finnegale bought into when they made him their leader, however many years ago it was now, six years or or so ago, seems increasingly tarnished to me. What What used to look authentic now just looks a bit juvenile. Um, What used to look um, modern now starts to look a bit glib. Am I wrong?
1: Well, I mean, we should draw a distinction, of course, between uh, the Taoiseach and and his partner. Um, But I can see what you're getting at. I mean, like, I I do think that, you know, Matt Barrett has a right to a a private life and a private social media uh, presence. But, like, we should you know, 350 people in a closed group on Instagram is not that private. As
2: I was saying to 350 of my closest friends <laughs> exactly. Only, yeah. only, only, only earlier today. And of course, he absolutely does have a right to um, a private life. There's no, uh, there's no doubt about that. And I think there's a broad acceptance for that, there actually, is, there among, is, there is, amongst people. There, at the same there, time, you're at that. the, he's point. not at the coronation because he's Dr. Exactly, Harris. exactly. He's that's at the, the that's coronation. That's the point I'm coming to.
1: Is. <laughs> you know what that, like, Just the same is, as if, if
2: Sabina Higgins started to throw bread rolls around at the banquet, uh, I think we might be... I think we might be. I'm entitled putting it on to, her
1: Instagram. Okay, we might be entitled. <laughs> to I mean, I've been very rude
2: about the coronation,
0: but that's fine because I wasn't invited. You know, is not really the point. <laughs> now, are you likely to be at this stage? No, I think. Yeah, I yeah. think not.
1: No. Yeah, well, give it time. You know, there'll be one along in, in just a few short <laughs> come years, along. I'm sure.
0: Well, that was part of the apology, wasn't it? It was never going to happen again. But Presumably, it wasn't ever going to happen again because he's not going to be back there in Westminster Abbey.
1: Yeah, but look, I suppose it does. It does. He he is there as the partner of of the Tishuk, uh, and it does put a bit of a a cloud over it. Um, you know, the the fact that he was kind of being. Uh, cheeky and glib in a way that that is at best kind of semi-private you know because he knows he and uh, Leo Vareca both know that they are very much in the public eye here and that there is an audience uh, out there for, you know, their, the, the, the space between their personal lives and their professional lives, or at least between the teacher's professional life, and that broadcasting something to 350 people, all of whom can screen grab it at a moment's notice and send it on to journalists, as as, as happened. In a situation
0: um, where you've been asked not to use your phone. In a situation the, where you're supposed to be
1: fairly solemn, you know, uh, even, even if in your private innermost sanctum, you think it's a bit silly or you think that, you know, I can make a couple of jokes of this. It's a bit undergraduate, really. Anyway, I think we've probably exhausted that subject and maybe it's not as serious as as I think it
0: is anyway. um, A much more serious subject is the political future of Northern Ireland as we speak The count is taking place in the local elections there. It's always a hazard if you're on a podcast because you're not a live breaking news operation that anything we say will have been overtaken by events within the time it takes to put this podcast up on the internet. But early indications Pat are that um, Sinn Féin is doing well, the SDLP is doing particularly badly and the kind of the struggle within unionism is more or less around as it was the last time. As I say those are early indications but if that's the case none of them are very surprising. I suppose really for us at this particular moment in time the question is where are political events likely to go in Northern Ireland once the dust settles after this count?
2: Yeah look obviously very early days and I heard some suggestion even earlier than, uh, than the point at which we're recording this That uh, that is to say this morning that uh, the alliance were doing well in some boxes that were being opened. We've a very partial picture um, at this stage but it does seem that I suppose recent trends are continuing, so to speak, and um, so it would be interesting to see if uh, Sinn Féin gets it over the line as the as the largest party in local government. Um, I, I would have said that's that's probably likely, but we won't uh, we won't know for sure uh, for some time. I suppose the bigger question then is uh, what does this do to political unionism and to uh, the DUP in particular as it weighs up this question of whether it's going to go back uh, into the power-sharing institutions um, or not. Uh, the general expectation um, in uh, in London and in Brussels is that uh, it will. There's a little more scepticism about it in, uh, in Dublin. I think on balance, the view in Dublin is that the DUP will rejoin the power-sharing institutions, but they are less certain of that than people in in London uh, appear to be. And I I, I think that scepticism is probably uh, probably justified. And is that because of knowledge of what's going on internally within the DUP? I think it's because of knowledge of the comfort that the DUP has with remaining outside any institutions. The DUP have been outside the power-sharing institutions at various points, including from the very start. And... If Jeffrey Donaldson is to go back in, he will want to do so from a position of strength within the broader unionist community. And what we will find out from these ele- from these elections, in which we're not really in a point uh, at a point to say at the moment, uh, I think maybe we'll be later tonight or certainly tomorrow, is whether he is in a stronger or weaker position within the Unionist community. So does that mean, Jack,
0: that the key numbers here are not the ones between Sinn Féin and the, the SDLP, although obviously it's very important for Sinn Féin to replicate its achievement in becoming the largest party in local government, as it already has done in mm. the in the Assembly elections, but it's the relative balance
1: between the DUP and the TV. I think that's right, uh, and it strikes me that the DUP can uh, can lose at a kind of headline level this election, um, and in that Sinn Féin could walk away being the largest party of local government in in the north. But in in probably a more meaningful sense, uh, they could they could extract a win from it if they can come out of it in the first instance at a higher vote share. Uh, Than the Stormont elections last year, which, if memory serves, I think they were the low at twenty, twenty-one percent. Mm-hmm. If they could, I think they were polling in the mid twenties in the run into this. So if if they if they can show that they went through that uh, that really kind of quite painful period uh, around the Stormont elections and came through the. Handling the way in which they they handled the Windsor framework and their strategy thereafter, which is to kind of slow walk it all the way out to this point and actually increase their vote share and retain um, the kind of primacy at the head of at the head of unionism, then I think that you know that that's more than a than a qualified uh, success. And I think that that is actually a success relative to where they were after the last set of elections, to be honest.
0: OK, um, every Friday we do uh, pick a few articles from the Irish Times over the course of the week that we found particularly interesting to recommend to our listeners. And actually, the article you picked, Pat, sort of relates to this because it's by the commentator, Alex Kane.
2: Yeah, it is, yeah. It'd be seen, I think, Wednesday's uh, Irish Times Company by one from uh, Matt O'Toole from the, uh, the STLP. And the argument that... Uh, Alex Kane was making is that unionism needs to learn from the success of Sinn Féin. It needs to think long term, uh, build alliances, act more strategically than it has uh, done done up until now. And in essence, I think what he was calling for, without I suppose explicitly saying so, is you know a a a, a farsighted and visionary political leadership of unionism of a type that we have not seen for a long time and um, his argument I suppose is that is what is needed to safeguard the future of the union between um, Northern Ireland and uh, and Great Britain and without it uh, I think that unionism will continue to be. Has that not
0: always been the argument of what you might call the moderate
2: unionist centre? Well, yes and no, but the unionism didn't have to win any arguments before because the inbuilt or the the, the, the designed feature of the Northern State was to supply unionism with uh, a permanent majority. We now know that permanent majority is gone, so unionism needs to change from uh, a, 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 a perpetually in power monolith to uh, a, a, an outfit that is capable of winning an argument for the union. And I'm not sure how you know culturally or politically prepared or equipped unionism is to do that. But if it doesn't do that, then it face, faces uh, a, a very uncertain future, I think.
0: Jack, you were reading um, a piece by Justine McCarthy, today, this morning, on Friday, um, sort of ruminating on all this issue around the the web, the news website, The Ditch, which has been in the news, has been making mm-hmm. news uh, a lot over the last few weeks. Uh, very interesting interview on RTE last weekend with Patty Cosgrave, who, who funds it. And she makes the point, which I think is 100% correct, that there is nothing new about media organisations having a political agenda.
1: Yeah, and look, this is an issue I've, I've been struggling to make my mind up on for quite a long time. And, and you know, I think that the emergence of the ditch and, and the very good work they've done on a whole range of stories ranging from on board Panala across to, uh, a kind of niche they developed investigating the, the land holdings of politicians, which has in turn led to the resignation of two ministers of state, it has asked questions of, of the mainstream media and, and, you know, that's no bad thing. Once in a while we should all be. Challenged. Um, but Justine is, is making the point that uh, that newspaper ownership, I suppose, or media ownership has always kind of in some ways been inherently political and often uh, newspapers or titles, let's call them, uh, act in a, in a political way. Whether They've that's, often been nakedly whether, political. Yeah, exactly. Whether that's kind of party political um, and obviously Eamon de Valera's historic involvement and the press there um, is, is clear uh, and was acknowledged and is acknowledged um, or kind of small p political like you know I was talking to Paddy Cosgrave actually during the week for an article that I was writing, and he was, he was claiming that the Irish Times and the Guardian have kind of political precepts in their articles of association, and I suppose that's true to a point. I mean, if you look at the at the kind of mission statements of, of many newspapers, including this one, they are kind of you know liberalism and, and progressivism and all the rest of it, while never actually aligning. All that with, I'll shite. all that Alshite, yeah, never actually aligning to a, to a party political goal. But I think that in the round, what Justine's piece calls us to do, and what I think is 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 worthwhile doing. Doing is to kind of uh, try and build a bit of media literacy uh, amongst everyone, and to kind of read every bit of political coverage, both in the context of what is being said and also who is being who is saying it. And that applies to the Irish Times. It applies to you know our our, our friends in the mainstream, in other parts of the mainstream media, including RT. But I think it applies to the ditch as well. Um, their stories stand on their own, but people should and will, I think, also read uh something of the the politics of their funder uh, Paddy Cosgrave into their output, and I think that's that 's only a natural thing that people do and that people should do as well as media consumers and I think that justine's um, justine 's column kind of pulls all the, those threads together quite nicely. The article I picked is the regular
0: weekly unthinkable column from Joe Humphreys. Oh, it is on, very good yeah. on Matters Philosophical uh, every Thursday on on my own arts page. There's a plug. Um, it's, it's 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 always very good, and it's particularly good this week because it's about a book which uh, I've just read myself, which I would recommend to our listeners because I think it's it's well worth reading. It's by it's by Brian Fanning, who's a who's an academic in UCD, and it's called uh, Public Morality and the Culture Wars, um, and it's. We all know about the culture wars don't we They, uh, um, I think it was Leon Trotsky who said you may not be interested in war but war is interested in you and the same I think is true of these many of these kinds of arguments uh, Joe writes about um, there's a central thesis in the book, I think, which is that, I mean, you were just talking about liberalism and progressivism there. He, he sees a schism happening between those two. None of these words are very adequate to describe political movements, I think. But he sees that liberalism and progressivism used to be seen under the same umbrella, but they're starting to diverge, that there's a, a form of social progressivism now, which is perhaps more censorious, which is actually illiberal it's in good, some kinds of ways. It's a good
2: deal less tolerant, of dissent and the essence of liberalism. Just because progressives were on the same side as liberals for a long period of time doesn't necessarily mean that they share the same core beliefs. I always struggle
0: with this a little bit. What is the difference between a progressive and a liberal? Progressive is more interested in social equality and a liberal is more interested in personal freedom. Is that a way to put it?
2: Yes, I think that's a reasonably good summary for the point at which we 're at in the discussion now, but the uh, progressives being more being interested in the particular design of a society which doesn't necessarily prioritize personal freedom.
0: Joe writes about in brian fanning 's book that there's a new form of an ideology um, promoted by some an idea called therapeutic morality, and I think we see this in in contemporary life where uh, hurting somebody, or indeed somebody expressing the idea that they have been hurt, kind of trumps all other forms of wrong or harm, and that that, that is what underlies. But hurt in an
2: emotional or, or intellectual can, sense. Well, yes, except that, that, except that the, the argument temples. that language is
0: violence kind of yeah. extends that into. Yeah, but it's bullshit. A greater sense but isn't that's, that's the second um, use of, of, the word, of, of, of the word for excrement that you've used um, so far Happy in this Friday, podcast. And I'm, yeah, not, yeah. Um, I'm not going to disagree with, with with your political authority. You are the political editor of the Irish Times. So oh, you, I'm not used used to he's them. not the <laughs> philosophy editor, though. That's I'm not, Joe. I, I, I'm not
2: used <laughs> to this level of deference, I have to say. Uh, but it is the sort of highbrow discussion that I frequently aspire uh, to have.
0: Uh, this, aspi- this aspire is the opposite of, <laughs> operative word there. Like, Jack, what do you think?
1: I'm just impressed by the the verbiage uh, arraigned in front of me at this stage on a Friday, Uh, you know, being able to summon the energy to talk about this at such length, um, you know, is, is impressive. So I doff my cap to you, both of you and I bow out of the debate. And we'll bow out of everything. For
0: our, that, that was our producer you heard laughing in the background there. Not not surprisingly, it's a uh, sign that it's time to go. We will leave it there for today. Thanks to Jack and the Pat for coming in. Please do come in again. Let's do it like this from now on. Uh, thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon, laughing in the background and our engineer, JJ Vernon. We will be back with you after the weekend, but do have a great weekend. See you then. Bye. <laughs>